very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Scott Richards. This guy right here. Yes, we will <laughs> soon be saying that in our sleep. Yes. But while you're all still awake with us, we will be happy to answer your Bible questions. And if you'd like us to receive them, there's a number of ways you can do that. If you'd like to email us, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions is plural, F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. If we don't get to your question during the broadcast or the question comes to you before you are able to engage with us live, that is where you can send them to us. Note that it is for sincere Bible questions. Sincerity meaning you want to hear the answer. Bible meaning that the substance of the question and answer both pertain to the Bible or perhaps uh, objections to it or contrary against it. Or, of course, uh, noting the things that pertain to the Christian life of which the Bible is about. If you have opinions or you had a conversation that made you feel bad or you watched a movie and want us to tell us about it, do that in person. We want to make sure that the email addresses are reserved for sincere Bible questions. If you'd like to engage with us live, our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, the number four, of course, replacing F-O-R. And if you subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live, which is going to be from 4 to 5 p.m. Arizona time, as opposed to Mountain Standard, because we don't follow daylight savings. Praise the good Lord and his holy name. But with that being in mind, if that's going to, of course, be different for those of you listening across the globe, that subscription service will basically allow you to avoid any confusion as to how the math maths out and if you want to join with us or of course you want to listen to it at a later date we have them stored on archive as well if you want to join us on facebook say youtube has banned you for speech uh i guess facebook wouldn't be all that better but it is still available so facebook will be at calvary christian fellowship of tucson T-U-C-S-O-N, of course, and Calvary being C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. Give us a like there, and you'll have the same benefits of YouTube, and we'll use that platform as long as we can. Say we can do neither, and you'd prefer not to take the risk, I guess would be the way to put it. Our website is also available at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Again, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. There you click on the Watch Live tab, and you can join us in the same way you would on YouTube or Facebook, but without the possibility of uh, Facebook jail or YouTube shadow banning. We'll be happy to receive your questions as long as they are sincere and about the Bible, and of course, asked in the form of a question. You get Jeopardy points for that. But before we uh, take a stab at any of these things, and as well giving a not necessarily prophecy update, but a humanity at its finest report, we want to pray and make sure that uh, the right. Word of God is what's put forward and not our opinions. So, Dad, would you like to pray for us? I would. <laughs> Father, thank you so much that we can spend time here in your presence talking about things that really matter. Uh, matters really uh, not just of uh, particular people's uh, flavors or, or favors regarding uh, one philosophical system or another, but your revealed Word, which matters more than anything else. Lord, uh, we're dealing with issues quite literally of life and death. We talk about having a relationship with you, Lord, and you desire to lead us into life and to turn us away from the ways of death, the ways of destruction that are doing such land office business in this world. But thank you, Lord, for your great power. Thank you for the clarity we have in your word. Guide us now, uh, fill Sean and I with your spirit that uh, we might speak your truth in love and allow people to be able to hear your voice during this time. 
Uh, thank you, God, that you are far more interested in guiding us and leading us into all truth than we could ever be. So uh, touch us and bless us uh, with your love and your presence here. And may we end up edified, exhorted, and comforted uh, as your Holy Spirit is here to do just that work in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, so what's up? Well, uh, big uh, issue over the weekend, uh, a uh, uh, really uh, disturbing uh, set of uh, circumstances uh, took place when a um, U.S. Air Force airman uh, by the name of Aaron Bushnell uh, went to uh, the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. to protest uh, what was going on in Gaza. Uh, he left a final message on social media uh, that said, My name is Aaron Bushnell. I'm an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. Uh, he was 25 years old at the time, uh, and uh, again, uh, you know, is been misrepresented as being a pilot, among other things. Uh, he was involved with IT in the Air Force, uh, but uh, the bottom line is this, he is being lionized, if you will, in uh, Islamic circles, and uh, many outlets on the left are portraying him as some kind of a hero, standing up to what he calls the genocide that is going on in uh, Gaza uh, these days. So a um, lot of controversy surrounding all of this, but uh, how are you to make sense of this in a spiritual sense. Well, first of all, the claim uh, that uh, Bushnell makes uh, that uh, there was genocide going on in Gaza or in the Palestinian territories is uh, pretty remarkable when you stop and think about it. Uh, statistically, it is very difficult to make the case that uh, Israel is the one that is committing genocide in these areas. Uh, when you take a look uh, over the last 40 years or so about the population statistics of Jewish people who lived in Arab nations, uh, it has uh, dwindled almost down to the microscopic. Uh, the, uh, the Jews have been pushed out virtually of every uh, Arab nation uh, you would uh, care uh, to mention, just as an example, in 1948, there were over 265,000 Jews in Morocco. Uh, now there are less than 2,000. In Syria, there were Jews numbering in the thousands. Now in Syria, there are no Jews living there. Uh, again, in Libya, for instance, uh, in 1948, there was a Jewish population of 38,000. Today, there are no Jews living in Libya. In Egypt, 19,000 Jews called at home in 1948, zero today. Uh, when we get to Iraq, same statistics tend to dominate, 150,000 Jews in 1948, uh, now uh, none, uh, and uh, the list goes on and on. Now, what about Israel? Is Israel committing a genocide then against uh, the Palestinian people? Well, very interesting statistics uh, come out of, in that. The Arab population of Israel in 1948 was 156,000. In 2023, the Arab population in Israel is 2,178,000. 
Yeah. Worst genocide ever. Yeah. So this is uh, in Jewish population, Arab countries, it decreased by 98.83%. The Arab population in Israel increased by 1,296%. And that's not just counting the birth rates going on in Palestinian territories. We're just talking so, about Israel proper. Right. So uh, when someone says a genocide is going on by Israel against Arabs, uh, the statistics simply don't bear this out. However, a person like Aaron Bushnell, who's been subjected uh, to uh, the constant drumbeat of propaganda uh, coming out, uh, especially of what's going on in the Gaza war and other sources, uh, if they believe this sort of thing and they believe it wholeheartedly and uh, feel they can no longer be complicit in this, I guess that is implicit in the idea that the United States uh, military supports Israel uh, and uh, supports its right to exist. Well, it's certainly one thing to protest against this sort of thing. That's certainly uh, your constitutional right in this country. But if someone is so sincere that they go to the front of the uh, Israeli embassy and douse themselves with lighter fluid and set it on fire, uh, there are those who will say, well, you know, this is just a really powerful, powerful uh, portrayal of uh, the, the validity of these claims. At least that's the way it's being portrayed on the internet today. So let's take this apart for just a second. Uh, there's no doubt about the fact that if you are so committed to a particular perspective on what's happening in the Middle East, that in order to protest it, extreme protest, he called it, uh, you are willing to burn yourself to death, which is a horrible way to go, by the way. Uh, you're very sincere. You're very sincere and very committed to your point of view. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. And note, he's not the first person to do this. There were pagan Hindus that made these protests in regards to their own government's decisions in history as well. Yeah, so the, the bottom line, though, is this. Does this prove or disprove a truth claim? Well, right off the bat, logically speaking, it does not. Uh, for instance, uh, you have to be very, very sincere uh, to dump lighter fluid on your head and light a match. There's no doubt about it. Meaning you believe something passionately. I believe my perception, my emotion, my information, limited right. or abundant though they may be, in this case limited, it's all centered around my experience, my perception, nothing beyond that. But to draw a similar analogy, 918 people willingly drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid at the command of the individual they believed to be God, the Reverend Jim Jones. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be very sincere, not only to drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak, that's where we got that phrase, by the way, but in many cases, entire families were found who drank the Kool-Aid. Parents literally giving their children cyanide-laced Kool-Aid because they believed that the one giving the command to do so was God. And now, that, now the question is this, do you have to be sincere to do something like that, to give your children cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and then drink the Kool-Aid yourself uh, at the command of your spiritual leader? The parents a were. Absolutely. You have to be very, very sincere. But does that validate the, the truth claim that Jim Jones made 
that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and that he was God? No, not in the slightest. Sincerity is a great virtue, but sincerity that isn't invested in truth is worthless. I can sincerely believe that human flight is possible by flapping my arms. I can be so committed to that proposition. I could leave this studio, drive to one of the skyscrapers in downtown Tucson, go to the 15th floor, open a window and say, I'll see you later. I'm flying to Los Angeles. But that's not going to make the sidewalk any softer when my flight to LA comes to an abrupt end. No matter how sincere we are, the object of our sincerity makes all the difference in the world. Now, Sean, when the idea of sincerity being proved by someone's willing to die for a cause or for a belief, oftentimes we as Christians will say to non-Christians, one of the great evidences that we have that Christianity is true is that out of the 12 disciples that were duly uh, instated uh, in Acts chapter 1, 11 out of those 12 didn't make it to a deathbed. They died brutal, grisly deaths for their faith. So the question comes up, how is that any different than, say, Aaron Bushnell self-immolating himself? Uh, I kind of, I guess that's redundant, but going through self-immolation. Or, say, a Muslim who detonates themselves as a suicide bomber because he believes uh, what Islam teaches, that this is the way to guarantee your entrance into Islamic paradise. What's the difference between the disciples of Jesus and Aaron Bushnell or uh, the people at Jonestown or a suicide bomber? Well, there's three main problems with, first of all, a Christian that would even sincerely put forward the idea that a uh, evidence for the resurrection is entirely based on the fact that these guys believed it. Now, if we're going to equate that with people like Muslims, people like the uh, citizens of Jonestown, people like this disgraced airman, we're ultimately building it on the idea of what? That they felt it was true. All of those things are entirely different circumstances and wouldn't be evidence for anything, as we're stating, unless they fit certain factors that only the Christian scenario does. And people need to be aware of this. So if I were to just say, they died for what they believed in, doesn't that convince you? That proves nothing. That only proves that they believed it to be true. And you could equate it with socialists, Muslims, and in this case, the Marxist. So what makes the Christian testimony different? First of all, the individual who immolated himself was doing so on the basis of verifiably false information that was contemporary to him. That's the first and most important thing. You could go to Israel and verify whether or not the treatment of Arabs is on the basis or comparable to South African apartheid. He could go to the Gaza region and see that the Hamas militants, and being an airman, he had access to government files as well, all building up around this idea that what? It's oppression on the basis of Israel, not Hamas, that the Hamas government wasn't put in place by them. All of this information was available to them, contemporary evidence. He knew 
or had access to information contrary to his belief, but not only chose not to take advantage of it, but the reason why this is almost tragically hilarious is because his own death could have been prevented by a Google search. Now, his willful ignorance does not dissuade his sincerity, but his sincerity bears no impression on reality. So what is the difference between the airmen and the apostles? The apostles, first of all, like the airmen, were reporting on something contemporary. They were eyewitnesses to the things that they were reporting, and even the enemies of Jesus reported the same basic principles, that what? He was crucified, that he was buried publicly, and that, of course, he claimed he would rise from the dead the third day. We see this reported not just in the Gospel of Matthew, but also hostile sources to Christianity like Tacitus, and, of course, people more than neutral towards Jesus like Josephus. But here's the interesting point that's driving this home. The apostles and the airmen were both living at a time where the sincerity of their claims, this is the big one, could be checked out. Right. You could go to Israel, in both cases, and say, did these things or are these things happening the way that they reported them? The disciples were reporting things that not only were being spoken to the people who knew about Jesus, but had literally ordered his execution themselves. Or I say ordered, manipulated his execution themselves. They could dismiss him if they said, there's no such thing as Jesus, like Bill Maher would say. Or Jesus was never crucified, like the Quran says. It's ultimately built around something that you could go to contemporary evidence to verify or to debunk. The airman was unwilling to look at contemporary evidence. He only built himself off of his emotions and proved himself a madman. The apostles weren't madmen. Why? Because every time they reported about things that were contemporary, that they had access to in their day and age, it was built around something they couldn't deny, they could only ignore, like the airmen. So then we go to the Jonestown illustration. Some of the parents were willing to give their children the Sinai Lace Kool-Aid. Now, as far as the children are concerned, you don't know about their sincerity. Right. And there were parents, this is Although they well. would sincerely believe that their parents were doing something positive for them. Until they yeah. tasted it. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. don't listen to it. Yeah. But the reports in the audio, there yeah. were a lot of horrible things yeah. happening there. But the point of emphasis is this. Some parents abandoned Jonestown. Some people, like, for example, a father abandoned his family as the mother killed her own child out of sincerity of her belief in Jim Jones as a socialist in the new advent of religion in the world. But what's the interesting thing about that difference? What's the difference between the apostles and the citizens of Jonestown? The citizens of Jonestown, though the majority were in support of believing Jim Jones's claims about himself, not all believed it. Some were willing to preserve their own lives to renounce their claims that Jim Jones was in fact who he claimed to be, and of course to reject his orders in proving that sincerity to their deaths. What was the difference between that and the disciples? Do we have one example of the original, not 11, but 500 documented eyewitnesses who all saw Jesus alive after his public death and burial? Right. Not one. So unlike with Jim Jones and Jonestown, we have people who were willing to acknowledge, you know, I don't trust my emotions enough to go to my death over this, and others were, which once again, like our previous point, emotional frenzy doesn't prove anything. But 
firsthand information that can check out and compare that with reality shows there were people who were for it and people who were against it. With the apostles, it was unanimous. They all endured lives of persecution. They all endured lives of torture. They all endured the kinds of deaths that, and this is key, could have been prevented if they had just recanted they had seen Jesus alive after his death. Not one. That's why we take that evidence more seriously, not just that they kept their story straight, which can be a result of collusion, but could also be a result that what? They all saw the same thing, right. and they believed it to the point, noting the sincerity, that they were willing to lay down their lives. Why? Because they saw him come back, and that's the point. That's the difference. Now for the Muslims. We've talked about socialism. We've talked about Marxism, but what about contrary to the claims of the Quran itself, a claim that this religious revelation from God is clarifying what was co-opted in history, that Jesus was never crucified according to Surah 4157, that it was only made to appear to them as Allah clarified to a 7th century caravan robber. What ultimately does that base its authority on? Well, he made a lot of claims. He made a lot of promises. He made a lot of statements that would get people mixed up into an emotional frenzy, willing to lay down their lives under the promise of the most carnal things you could imagine. By the way, ripped off from Persian paganism, but that's another issue. What ultimately is the difference between the apostles and the modern-day Muslim in their sincere claims to lay down their lives for not just a political cause like the airmen, not just a socio-political or moral or even religious cause like Jonestown, but in this case an exclusively religious claim, much like with the apostles. We talked about contemporary evidence. The Quran was written 700 years after the events that it's reporting. You have to put a lot of faith in Muhammad to be hearing from God in order to get those things right. And you know what his main evidence was? He had a giant mole on his back, which he claimed was the seal of the prophets despite no Jewish sources ever saying that having a mole makes you a prophet. I've never heard that before. Isn't that's, that, that's isn't, impressive. Don't you want to convert right now? <laughs> I can give you the Shahada. Oh, gosh. So it's ultimately built on that. You have to take Muhammad's word for it. You have to take Jim Jones' word for it. You have to take CNN and TikTok's word for it in order to buy this nonsense. The fact that Muslims are being emotionally manipulated. The fact that this airman was emotionally manipulated. The fact that the people of Jonestown were emotionally manipulated puts the fault on the false prophet like Jim Jones, like TikTok, like Muhammad ibn Abdullah in order to result in these sort of things. But what proof did Jesus provide that his claim that he would die and rise again should be taken seriously? He did it! and he verified it with eyewitnesses. He referenced Old Testament Jewish prophets that he didn't lie about and had never read and wouldn't know the difference between them in a phone book seen in reference to Muhammad. He didn't use modern contemporary things and popular political movements like socialism in order to mull over his followers' desire to actually check as to whether these things were, too, were true, like Jim Jones. He didn't hide information from himself like YouTube and TikTok algorithms that would isolate someone into the point of extreme actions even to their own death. Now the fault of this, you can label it, lab, excuse me, label it at social media, 
You can label it at the hands of the people he was subscribing to that were espousing this nonsense. You could espouse it to whoever. But ultimately, the responsibility of this man's foolish action that took his own life is at his own feet for the same reason that our eternal destiny is placed between us and God, because the testimony of the apostles is sufficient to come to an objective conclusion, not overwhelmingly, but enough to say, I have more reason to believe they were telling the truth than they were not, unlike Jim Jones and unlike Muhammad. The problem is Muslims are literally held at knife point at the threat of losing their families, their communities, and in most places in the world, their own heads if they would dare apostatize from their religion. Sahih Bukhari notes, in the most straightforward way possible, whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. If a Muslim actually looks up the evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection, they would not only have to reject Islam, but they have to measure that against things like Nabil Qureshi, for example, and saying, I would want to know the truth about God, but I also wouldn't want to know if Christianity was true or not because it would destroy my family. People have to make those kind of emotional decisions. So what do they do? They'll make up for the facts with frenzy. And that's why um, this was an amusing story. Sorry to take a lighter note at a darker topic. But when Nabil was starting to get closer to having to come to an honest conclusion about whether or not Jesus was in fact telling the truth and Muhammad wasn't, he would always sign his email addresses and letters as Nabil Qureshi, a firm and devout believer in the truth. He was making up for the intellectual problems with this position with emotional passion. And no one will stand before the judge of all the earth and say, but I feel reality doesn't care. And this is the point. When someone does something horrible to themselves, it doesn't make it less horrible if it's done for a, and I'll be frank, stupid reason. If they made verifiably false claims, they are the liar. If they were lied to, that still makes them foolish because we live in a society that has more access to information, more reasons to counter these things than any other time in history, yet we choose not to. Let it not be said amongst us. What we need to take away from this incident is, first of all, grief for his family, ultimately allowing God to be the judge between this person and eternity, which we can come to an objective conclusion. There's no greater manifestation of the heart of Satan than hatred of his people. But who knows in the two or three seconds before his lungs filled with smoke that God got a hold of his heart. We don't know. But here's the point. If someone comes to you and says, I don't care what you believe, I care what's true, that's someone that can be ministered to. If someone says, I don't care what's true, I care about how I feel and what I believe, that is the biggest obstacle right now between the gospel and salvation. Yeah. So yeah, understand that. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the bottom line, though, is this. Uh, the disciples died not for, say, secondhand information. Uh, not for something they heard in the media. They died because, uh, for, as John said in the gospel, in, the, in First John, uh, what we've seen with our eyes, what our hands have handled, heard with our ears concerning the word of life. Uh, Simon Peter said, we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the coming and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, when James, uh, when uh, John and Peter were put on trial by the same uh, seasoned group of political power brokers, that orchestrated the death of Jesus uh, and told never to speak or teach again in his name, 
uh, he's, they responded, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you be the judge, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. The difference between, say, a uh, person like Aaron Bushnell or a uh, individual who blows themselves up in a car bomb because they believe it's their ticket to heaven is they are all taking other people's word for things uh, with varying degrees of accuracy, sometimes wildly inaccurate. Uh, the disciples were willing to die for firsthand solid information. Now, this is really this is where uh, the career of the disciples and their willingness to lay down their lives becomes very, very powerful because you will never find an individual who is willing to die for something that he knows is a lie. Uh, there are those skeptics who will say, well, you know, the disciples after Jesus was crucified, maybe they'll even be willing to go that far, uh, you know, said to themselves, well, you know, we, we, we don't really want to go back to uh, catching fish or collecting taxes, so let's make up a religion surrounding this Jesus. Now, if that was the um, Passover plot, as uh, the uh, old pot boiler put it, uh, this was one of the worst business plans in the, the history of mankind because it cost all of them their lives. It didn't provide them any kind of financial wherewithal. In fact, it cost them everything. And they were willing to do this, not because of a feeling, not because of secondhand information, but because of what they had seen and heard regarding the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So if someone says, well, they were just like uh, the disciples dying for Jesus. No, categorically, uh, we're talking about something different. Another interesting uh, question came up on our X feed. I uh, wanted to uh, throw this out uh, to you as well. Uh, Danielle Strickland, who was apparently a uh, significant internet influencer with 18.3 thousand followers, uh, said this, people calling the Holy Spirit a he bothers me. Just saying. There is strong biblical evidence that spirit is feminine. Also, God is not male. So we keep referring to every member of the Godhead as he. We reinforce God as male over and over and over. Time to stop. Now, why would we say that the Holy Spirit is a he? Because he said. Now, when we're asked the question, of course, is God male or female in biological terms? We're obviously talking about a biological description of something that isn't a biological. And I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I also want to make sure it's driven home to the point. When we're talking about the Holy Spirit being described in terms of relationship, it's the same way that the Father and Son are. They use distinct male terms not to describe their biology, because according to John chapter 4, God is spirit, not something physical, but spiritual, something immaterial. And material includes the modem of your X or Y chromosomes being lined up. Right. When God, the Son specifically, took on flesh and dwelt among us, we would appropriately describe him not as a he, but as a male, including a he, despite the witness of the Old Testament also including him with male, quote-unquote, pronouns, to use the modern term. Yeah. It's not a modern term, but you understand the point I'm emphasizing. Now, if we're going to look for specific examples of where and when the Holy Spirit is specifically designated as male, we need to, of course, ask the question, what specifically are you looking for? If we're looking for reasons to believe he is God, 
You can go, for instance, to Job chapter 33 and verse 4, where it notes that the Holy Spirit gives life, and noting that God alone is the life giver, that he's the one who, uh, by his will, all things exist and were created. That's Revelation chapter 4. That's identifying him as God, because certain things can only be said of God and be true. Likewise, when Jesus, in association with the Holy Spirit, uh, through the eternal spirit, offered himself as one sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews states. We're noting an affiliation where you can say, so the he's in those passages would reference Jesus, maybe not necessarily the Holy Spirit, but it's ultimately built around this idea of, okay, what should we refer to it as? And that's generally where people want to prefer, like the individual that's making this comment on Twitter. There's a few passages that we can go to, and again, noting the work of the Spirit, the person of the Son, the authority of the Father, Trinitarian passages that would identify all of these persons as God is also noting, and this is important as well, one of the most fundamental rules of debate. You make the claim, you provide the evidence. If someone's going to make the, the thrust, the conclusion, that, okay, since the Holy Spirit is not necessarily male, noting biology, right? He never took on human form, so he wouldn't be described that way. Therefore, that must mean that she's female, because it's either one or the other, right? Right. And this is where the cultural divide comes in. Now, you may say, oh, well, what if it's Z or Zer? Shut up. The idea is all centered around this idea, though. Okay, what reason would you have to believe that the spirit is female? Do you have a positive case you can make for your claim? And the answer, of course, would be none. There could be inferences where they say in Genesis chapter 1, for instance, that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and it was a reference to a mother hen brooding. See, mother hen, that's a female thing to do, as if men can't also dwell on top of something by the way um <laughs> this is a little bit of an aside uh, but when i was up in uh, washington uh, with my aunt and her family uh, uh two weekends ago one of the things my aunt loves to do uh is to watch uh this bald eagle cam uh that they have like apparently there's a bald eagle nest in the big bear california area uh up by big bear lake lake arrowhead and they put a camera up there and they watch these eagles take care of the eggs in the nest and you'll be able to watch these eagles as the eaglets are hatched and, and so on. Uh, well, one of the interesting things about that, um, as an aside is that, uh, every once in a while you'll see the mama eagle doing yeoman's duty, brooding on the eggs, uh, needs to get up and stretch a little bit. So the male eagle will come back usually with a fish to feed mama because she's been doing her thing, brooding over the chicks. And then the mama will fly away, and guess what? The male eagle gets on the eggs and broods on them. So brooding is not necessarily a female function. And then the question comes up, well, you never have an example of the spirit doing male-esque things, which is kind of a cultural inference, not necessarily a divine one, where I would respond, okay, let's go to Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 16, where the Lord speaking, we would later identify this as God the Son, says, you know, have I not spoken in secret? I have not kept it from the beginning, but now the Lord God, in authority over him, right, submitting right. authority, and his spirit have sent me. 
the Father and the Spirit are sending the Lord to accomplish his work. Right. Now, if you're going to read into this, the idea that giving orders or being brought under authority is exclusively a female term, then you have God the Son being a female in this case, and the Spirit being the male position. Now, you'd say, obviously, that this is a assumption, this is an assumption, get my grammar right, we're being mincing details on this after all. Right. That, of course, I'm reading into the idea that male things and female things, how I interpret that, should be read into the text. But the problem still remains. You, me specifically, haven't given a positive example of the spirit being referred to as a he. Now, if you want to get into the Greek, we can go down that rabbit trail, but let's just note the plain English. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, in the context of spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit is described as the one working in all these things. What things? The giving of spiritual gifts. And it says in plain English, distributing to each one individually as he wills. When the Spirit of truth has come, he wills will, will guide you into all truth. That's another example yep. of John 16 and yep. 14. But yep. here's the point. We have positive examples of the Spirit being referred to as a he. And if that's a revelation of God to us, that's no more a building up of a male identity as divine than it is a female one. Why? Because in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 2, it notes that in the beginning, God created male and female. In the image of God, he created them. Now, does that mean that God is both male and female? No, we're noting that the biological description is different from the spiritual nature of God. But if we're asking how we should refer to him relationally, saying that the spirit is goddess is inaccurate because scripturally we're told proper male terms. Yeah. Now, if you think that that's oppressive or male supremacist, I'd say that says more about your attitude than it does about Scripture, because what do we read in Galatians? There is neither male or female, there's neither bond nor slave, Jew nor free, barbarian or Scythian, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Our status of superiority or inferiority on the basis of gender, culture, language, ethnic background, irrelevant, because we're joined in spirit right. to God. That's the term that's being misunderstood here. So if we read God into being biological, we've missed the whole point. God the Son became a biological man in human history, but the Father and Son aren't biological. They reveal themselves to us speaking in male terms, but that's no more a knock against women than it is a bump up towards men. It's just a statement of fact. So, right, right. So there you go. So uh, thank you all for uh, alerting us to that on our X platform. And uh, if you want to get us questions, on our X platform, uh, we're available at twitter.com forward slash Scott R4H. That's S-C-O-T-T, the letter R, the number four, and the letter H. And uh, you can uh, direct mail us our questions. We're looking into, by the way, uh, making the bridge to get a Reason for Hope live on X, if you are following us on the uh, platform formerly known as Twitter. Uh, we are uh, working through the bugs on all of that, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, meet you on that platform directly. All right. Um, let's deal with this real quick, just as kind of an example. Uh, I'll keep the individual anonymous because this is more of a rebuke, but the individual wants to know about Donald Trump telling people to drink bleach and Republicans worshiping him. Isn't Donald Trump Jim Jones, people who blow up abortion clinics? All of this is being noted. 
um, when we're asked to join in the vitriol that the internet tells us to share towards fill in the blank as far as your political party is concerned, is that the purpose of this broadcast? And when it ultimately comes down to it, I'll deal with the second half. Someone who blows up an abortion clinic, which happened once in the 90s, I think, uh, who would claim to have done it in the name of God, to be a Christian means to be like Christ. So if someone does something that is either contrary to or claims to be what Jesus did, but he never did, they are the bad Christian. So if we are going to look for an example, say the best possible one, I'll name two, where Jesus would have permitted violence in protection for or promotion of his message, it would have been the night that he was arrested. Peter drew his sword. He tried to cut off the head. He ended up only with the ear of a man who Bad was, aim. Yeah, yeah. was later revealed to be the servant of the high priest Malachus. Jesus put it back on. If that was supposed to help, yeah. but it did. He performed a miracle and said... Uh, although, if I was part of the mob going to arrest Jesus and I just see him reattach an ear with a touch, I might uh, start thinking, maybe I'm riding the wrong pony in this race, but go ahead. If the point had already been yeah. made when he said the divine name and they all fell down on their faces, yeah. Yeah. that that kills me. Yeah. But the idea of, okay... There would have been an instance to defend Jesus with violence or promote Jesus with violence. And what did Jesus say? Put away your sword. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Violence isn't something that I condone in promotion of the truth. We're not like pagans. We don't say might makes right. Now, if that's then the case, and we look at other examples, say for instance, the Sons of Thunder, John and James, where after Jesus was rejected in a city, and there's no greater manifestation of the rejection of God than the human sacrifice and the normalization of it, right? Right. Going outside abortion clinic, John and James said what? Shall we call down fire on them like Elijah did on the people who threatened his life? What did Jesus say? You do not know what manner of spirit you are. That is not my heart towards people that reject me. Right. Now, God will hold the people who perform these abortions to account, and many people have come to a saving relationship with God as a result of seeing just how evil this practice is. But the fact that evil is in existence is no more a Christian's call to violence than anything else would be in history. Jesus has statements against it, has words of condemnation for it, and if a Christian tries to justify right. his behavior through terrorism and violence, he's acting contrary to Christ, thus would not be a Christian, a Christ-like action. The behavior of Christians doesn't define Christianity. The commands and example of Jesus was. And why is it that the only example of violence being performed in Jesus' name, took about a thousand years after the time of Christ when they were responding to Muslim aggression? Tell you something. Now, here's the point. When someone, and this is the second issue, when someone says, now, I hate Trump. All Christians should hate Trump. Trump's evil. Trump is Jim Jones. Trump is Hitler. Trump is this and that. Okay, um, first of all, is that a Bible question? And secondly, when well, it comes yeah, to... Well, it, yeah, it does deal with a very important biblical issue. So let me just jump in on that one right off the top. Um, what are we to, how are we as believers uh, to respond to people in positions of authority with whom we disagree? Uh, the scripture is really explicit about this. First Peter chapter two and verse 13 says, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or to governors as to those sent by him, referring to God for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. But as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And who was king at the time he was writing that? Uh, that would have been uh, Caesar Nero. So uh, not really what I would call an honorable man, but the priority that we see in Scripture is to honor those as far as we can honor them. The, the second thing I would say is this. Uh, you know, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, there is a picture of the pathway of growth that God has for us as his people. Uh, we are told uh, that God desires for us to all come to the unity of the faith and in, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Now, one of the, the real dangers that we can get into, and we'll just put uh, the, the uh, politics aside for just a second here, is that we can become so passionately uh, committed to a particular political persuasion that it almost becomes tribalistic to us. Uh, we don't really consider that the people on the other side or the leaders on the other side are human beings for whom Jesus died. Instead, they are kind of cut-out figures, Hitlerian in their backgrounds, and uh, I've heard people make the same charges about Donald Trump as they have about Joe Biden, as they have about Ronald Reagan, as they had about uh, Barack Obama. Here's the problem. When we get suckered in, if you will, to allowing hate and vitriol and a partisan spirit on our part, to allow us to start demonizing individuals, to have our discourse be characterized by what I would call ad hominem attacks. If we find ourselves using the term idiot or, uh, or Hitler or, or a fascist or a no good lousy commie or things like this, uh, you know, these uh, really live words uh, that is going on here. You know what? we've done, we've moved away from speaking the truth in love. We've moved away from what Colossians chapter three tells us, uh, let your speech be grace seasoned with salt so that you might have an answer for all men. Instead, we're trying to fight fire in a sense uh, by pouring on the kerosene. And the only thing that comes out of that is a sense of divisiveness. Uh, when people ask me what my political persuasion is, uh, because we take a, uh, a very strong view on the inerrancy and inspiration of the Word of God, they automatically assume that I'm a registered Republican. Well, I am not. I am a registered independent. In fact, when people ask me about my political persuasion, I tell them uh, I'm neither a Republican or a Democrat. I'm a monarchist because I serve the great King. Uh, I'm an ambassador for Christ. And part of that ambassadorship means that I take a look at uh, the responsibility I have uh, for the fact that God placed me uh, in this time and place in a Republican form of government, representative form of government, where I have the opportunity to vote and interact uh, with those who represent me. And uh, you know, again, the scripture says that uh, righteousness exalts the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So 
If I know that is the priority of the one who has sent me, my great king who has sent me here as an ambassador, then as his representative, I am well within my rights. Dare I say I'm obligated by the situation I find myself in to use these particular avenues to pursue the righteousness that exalts a nation, that makes it pleasing in the eyes of God. And so I need to be very careful that when I engage in areas that touch on politics. Here's uh, a, a piece of advice that I think can really, in a sense, to quote the famous line from Ben-Hur about letting Jesus take the sword from your hand. Um, go after the issue. Don't go after the issuer. Uh, and, and this is what I mean by that. Uh, you know, for me, uh, the deciding issues, and your mileage may vary, but uh, for me, having studied the word, uh, and wanting to have my political points of view line up with the word as much as possible, I try to keep my non-negotiables down to a minimum. Uh, and and that, that, it comes down to this. I cannot, in good conscience as a Christian, support any political candidate who is in favor of abortion, who supports abortion on demand, uh, who, say, for instance, uh, would support abortion up to the moment of childbirth. Uh, you know, again... I believe strongly that life begins at conception. Again, Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed substance in the days that were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. I know my life began at conception. You probably know your life began at conception. So uh, if we're pro-life, we're going to protect the dignity inherent and God-given uh, an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that God has invested in every stage and spectrum of life. So I can't budge on the uh, pro-life issue. You see, scripturally or scientifically, I just can't budge. And so if someone's going to represent me in the halls of power and make laws uh, regarding this issue in the land, I'm going to look very, very carefully at where they stand on the pro-life issue. The second issue is where do they stand in terms of supporting Israel? In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, and we could go into an awful lot of scriptures about this, but in 12, Genesis 12 and verse 3, God promised Abraham he would bless those who blessed him and curse those who curse him, referring to Abraham and his descendants, the ones who would receive the covenant, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. I cannot support in good conscience any politician who would turn their back on Israel and not support them in a very antagonistic world. But that's it. The rest of it, economics, um, you know, other social issues, you know, how you feel about uh, securing the border, uh, issues that matter a lot to people, Second Amendment rights, uh, all these things I have personal takes on, but they are uh, incredibly minor compared to those two issues. If you can't get past those two issues, uh, the other things, well, don't really seem to matter all that much to me. So uh, what I would really recommend that you do is sit down and figure out whether these kind of issues that you seem to be very, very passionate about, do they really line up and are justified by a careful study of God's Word? Uh, what, what principles are going to be guiding you? You know, yesterday we talked a bit about Apollos, and what made him such a marvelously used man of God in Acts chapter 18. Three things. First of all, he was a man of principle. He was mighty in the word. He understood God's word. 
Secondly, he was passionate about God's word. Uh, literally, the word uh, that describes him is one who was literally bubbling over as he shared the word of God. But also, he was a person who realized he was in process. He realized that he hadn't become like Jesus yet. And when the two people, Priscilla and Aquila, explained to him that he wasn't telling the whole story about Jesus, and you can read the account in Acts chapter 18, he gladly received the correction. I know it's very difficult to take a step back from our dearly held and passionately invested in political uh, points of view, as you've expressed in uh, your contact here with us. But I would encourage you, take a deep breath, walk around the block, and pray. Ask God to lead you into wisdom. The book of James tells us if any of us lacks wisdom, that is God's point of view, uh, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not such a one believe they'll receive anything from God. So the, the thing I would really encourage you to do is this. Rather than letting your emotions get the best of you uh, and your passions rule the day, take a step back and say, okay, is this really a principled stand biblically? Can I attach chapter and verse to calling someone whose political persuasions I don't like Hitler if they're not Hitler? Um, you know, you don't want to be dropping the H-bomb because it, it discredits you. People will just think that you're blathering and they won't listen to anything else really that you have to say. Uh, you know, yesterday, uh, Bob Costas, the, uh, the uh, famous uh, sportscaster, uh, really created a hue, cry, and an uproar uh, when he said that anyone who would vote for Trump is part of a dangerous cult. Well, my reaction to that is this. Okay, why do you say that? Why would you say such a thing? Is Bob Costas interested in reaching people who are supporters of Donald Trump and perhaps getting them to see the other side? Well, by calling them members of a dangerous cult, you're not going to cause somebody to go, oh, wow, nobody ever really pointed out to me that I'm a dangerous cultist. Man, maybe I really need to rethink my political point of view. All that kind of rhetoric does is cause the opposition to dig in and become more convinced that their point of view is correct, and it works the other way. If I call somebody a horrible Marxist or something like that because they tend to vote on the liberal side of things. I can feel better after venting, right? But is that person going to be one step closer to considering the other side uh, than they were at the beginning? Uh, Abraham Lincoln had a famous quote about this. He says, if I take my enemy and make him my friend, have I not defeated my enemy? Yeah. So don't get so caught up in you know, being around an environment where you're in, uh, encouraged to, you know, throw Molotov cocktails verbally or, or on Twitter about other people. Take a step back and realize that God wants to be Lord even over our political persuasions. And, 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 and I think, uh, you know, again, if you can chapter and verse it scripturally, show that the political persuasions you support are uh, there in the scripture, good on you. If you can't, well, maybe you've become a little bit more tribal then maybe you really think. So consider that. Let TDS not be spoken amongst God's people. Right. Um, two more questions I think we have time for because both are fairly straightforward. Uh, Noth wants to know what's the difference between human development from an embryo into an adult and the theory of evolution. Well, Noth, 
first understand there are dozens of theories of evolution. Macroabiogenesis evolution through means of natural selection, the idea that we all share a common ancestor, we came from nothing, we're ultimately going to nothing, that everything in life is a result of random chance, requires two things that have never been proven. First, uncaused effects, and second, a transitional process of form between one species to another. Human embryo development does not transform on occasion from a human being into an animal, no matter what pronouns say on Twitter. The whole point and emphasis of evolution is that through no purpose, through no cause, things will transform into other things at a very gradual rate. We can't observe it. We haven't observed it. There's no evidence for it. Whereas human beings growing up can be demonstrated through scrapbooking. And then lastly, well, uh, can I just add something to that? Uh, the idea of embryonic recapitulation, that's what it's called, that the embryo basically retells the whole story of human evolution from its beginning. Uh, this was based upon uh, some drawings that a evolutionist from the early 1900s named Ernst Haeckel drew. And he uh, was telling the truth. And no, he was not. Oh. Uh, in fact, uh, he produced these drawings supposedly based on specimens of different emb embryos. But uh, to this day, even evolutionists will say that Ernst Haeckel's drawings are not accurate and do not recapitulate the evolutionary process. And uh, if you're interested in digging into that, there's a great article on Haeckel's drawings, and it's found at AnswersInGenesis.org. All right. Well, uh, we'll deal with Mike's question tomorrow then. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, pray for the family of the individual who immolated himself. Pray that we're not caught up in our emotions, that political statements end up leading us away from the truth, and that we all grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and encourage to do so to one another as we see the day approaching. God bless you. We'll see you all tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.